Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. All witnesses, persons of interest, and or suspects are considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. For me, as a kid, honestly, with family members not talking about it, since no one would ever talk to me about it, it's just did everyone like not like me because, you know, I was named after her and was always their biggest reminder of the biggest tragedy in their family. This is Method and Madness, Episode 71, The Namesake, Part 2. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. Previously on Method and Madness, you were introduced to Katrina Marshall, whose mother, Deborah, suffered a devastating loss in 1985 when her big sister, Katrina Mowry, was murdered. I literally managed to, like, have one goal of solving a murder and ended up with so many different mind-blowing, eye-opening, what-the-hell moment situations like you would not believe. Katrina Marshall is the namesake of her aunt Katrina Mowry, the oldest sister of the Mowry girls, Joanne and Deborah, all born in the early 60s. They were really close in age. They were very close overall. Of course, they grew up together, just always in each other's space, having to share rooms and stuff. And they were just all, all three best friends growing up in Lawrence, Kansas. I have only met my biological grandfather maybe like two or three times in Dallas. He was resentful, I guess you could say, I'm sure. And he actually ended up kidnapping my mom and both of her sisters out of the front yard of their grandparents' house. The three Maori girls, preschoolers living in Kansas at the time, were kidnapped by their father and taken to Dallas, Texas, They were found by their mother nearly two years later, and that was the first of many traumatic events that would alter the girls' trajectories forever. Katrina Marshall never had the opportunity to meet the aunt she was named after, for her aunt Katrina was killed in 1985 and left in the trunk of an abandoned car in an alley. Her baby sister, Deborah, never gave up on trying to get answers from the Dallas PD. And when others, family members even, turned their backs and tried to forget about Katrina's tragic death, Deborah went on to name her daughter Katrina. She was so hurt by that that she literally named her only daughter after the victim just so they would have to keep and continually say her name and keep the memory alive. Catherine Katrina Mowry was living in Dallas, Texas, the summer of 1985. On June 25th of that year, a call to the police was made about a strong odor coming from an abandoned 1978 Ford LTD. Upon arrival at the scene, officers discovered the trunk had been locked with a key from the outside. They pried the trunk door open, and inside lie a naked Katrina Mowry wrapped in a sheet. It was estimated that she had died two days earlier. Today, you'll hear more from the namesake, Katrina Marshall, and how the death of her aunt Katrina left a family divided, and how another murder 
rocked the Maori family. Let's dive in. The community of Lawrence, Kansas, was grieving the loss of Katrina Mowry that summer of 1985. Friends she'd gone to school with, teachers, her family. It's the impact that people leave behind when they pass on. Katrina wasn't a woman left in a trunk. She was a daughter, a sister, and a friend. On Method and Madness, we often discuss how violent crimes are handled differently throughout the decades— whether it be advancing technology or new investigative tactics, or how bias, either by police or witnesses, or even surviving family members, can alter the way a crime is viewed as a whole. For many of us, it's difficult to look at a murder, anyone's murder, through the lens of apathy. We feel that empathy, that loss. We feel sympathy for the family, or we imagine what the victim must have gone through. For others, that indifference may surface for a number of reasons. Maybe you're a member of law enforcement and you're trained to not show emotion. Maybe you're an investigator in way over your head and you reach for the low-hanging fruit in order to say, case closed. Perhaps you're a witness who's trying to distance yourself or your community from ugliness, trying to protect the reputation of something or someone. For the Maori family, maybe you're simply unprepared, as many families of homicide victims are, left with no tools to proceed, no support system, no guidebook telling you what's okay to feel, what's okay to question. Dallas police estimated that Katrina Maori died on June 23, 1985, before she was discarded in a car trunk. Initially, they said the 24-year-old woman had died by suicide, and that's what Katrina's family was told as well. Some of them, back in Kansas, believed that. An investigator gives you an answer, you may not have any reason to doubt it. How anyone came to this conclusion, that Katrina died by suicide, is unknown. There was nothing about her death or the circumstances in which she was found that indicate this could in any way have been suicide. If this were a suicide, Katrina would have undressed, wrapped herself in a sheet, and climbed inside the trunk of a car. From there, she would also need to lock the trunk with the key from the outside, or ask someone else to. It was a newspaper that first reported that Katrina's death was attributed to an overdose. Dallas Homicide Sergeant H.M. Rice commented that there was evidence at the scene that Katrina had taken cocaine. They further speculated that Katrina must have died of an overdose and someone she was with decided to leave her body in a trunk. Sergeant Rice was quoted as saying that the death was not going to be investigated as a homicide, since they had no idea who put her there. What's troubling about both of these theories is that neither seem based on any facts but rather by an assumption of who the victim was. Katrina was identified by her fingerprints, and police discovered 
that she had acquaintances who were in the Dallas drug scene near and around the neighborhood where her body was found. Is this the evidence that the investigators were talking about? That Katrina had died of a cocaine overdose? Or were there drugs or paraphernalia in the car? She was naked and wrapped in a sheet. Was there an assumption that she was just another drug addict who died of an overdose? Police, lawmakers, and politicians are known to misguide the public when it comes to safety. There's fear-mongering, which is done to convince the public that being more tough on crime will solve the issues of violence while ignoring how some of the so-called solutions often affect minority groups. On the other side of that coin, if a crime is downplayed to create an illusion of safety, well, this is also harmful if it doesn't address the issue and leaves a dangerous perpetrator on the street. So whether Dallas PD were trying to downplay the danger of a killer being free, or they didn't think the victim deserved justice, or they were simply unprepared to launch a homicide investigation, as you'll see through the remainder of this series, mistakes were made, and they had devastating impacts that lasted for decades. On Saturday, July 6th, 1985, Katrina Mowry was laid to rest. A newspaper article out of her hometown in Kansas said, Private burial services were held Saturday for Catherine Katrina Mowry, 24, a former Lawrence resident. Survivors included her mother and stepfather, two sisters, three brothers, and three stepbrothers. The circumstances surrounding her death are still under investigation by the Dallas, Texas Police Department. And wouldn't you know, 38 years later, that last detail is still relevant. Katrina's death is still under investigation. But how much effort had been put into this investigation in the first place? Time and time again, in speaking with survivors of violent crime or people who have lost family members to violent crime, the same concern comes up. Not enough is being done by law enforcement. Let's compare it for a moment to corporate America. You have a job you go to, 9 to 5. Your supervisor assigns you a task that you have no idea how to complete, and you're given little guidance on how to get it done. Maybe nobody circles back and checks up on it. Maybe you start to hope nobody noticed that you didn't get to it. The more time that passes, the more you forget that task existed. Until a month later, your supervisor stops at your desk and asks about the status. You stammer, trying to come up with some reason you didn't get to it. Uh, yes, I've been looking into that. I'll update you by the end of the day. You then scramble to come up with something that resembles progress. Maybe you put in two hours of work to make up for the month that you ignored the task. Your supervisor has no reason to doubt you. You're consistent, and you've completed all your tasks before. But your supervisor didn't realize you weren't actually skilled in completing this task, and so you placate to keep the calm, to not give away that you were never quite ready for this task without outside help, and that you only actually worked on it when you were reminded or prompted or held accountable. It's a situation that shows the system is broken. Whatever the reason, there's something broken. Now apply this same hypothetical corporate situation but apply it to law enforcement agencies. 
There are flawed systems. There are training issues and lack of accountability, lack of supervision, mistakes made in the process. First, there were the assumptions made about Katrina's cause of death. The first initial theory that they told my mom was that it was a suicide, which obviously us and everyone else in the world knows that's obviously not it. Based on all the other factors, she never knew a lot of those details. We've always both had some very strong intuition. I don't know what it is, but I've ignored my gut feelings or my initial reactions for the majority of my life. It was kind of an internal warning sign. And now that I'm older and I've had more experience with it, I've really learned to kind of step back when I have those skeptical moments and let it sink in before I think or act in a certain way. But the way she was found, it just seemed so obvious. It seems so intentional to me that they would rule it a certain way like that, considering the circumstances she was found in. And if you look at her obituary in the newspaper even, it says Dallas PD still investigating the circumstances surrounding the murder or whatever. Deborah Mowry knew her sister's death was not suicide. The other assumption that was made, the overdose, was believed by some of the Mowry family, but not Deborah. Call it intuition. Call it a sisterly bond. As the 80s came to a close and America entered the decade of grunge music and the World Wide Web, Deborah stayed on top of Dallas PD, following up consistently to see if the investigation had led to any promising new leads. At 24, she managed to find love with a 35-year-old man named Philip Wayne Marshall. It only took one day to begin dating exclusively. The pair lived within walking distance of each other and smoked the same brand of cigarettes. Their wedding took place in 1989, a happy time for the young bride, but one that was overshadowed by someone very special, notably missing from the celebration. And on January 19, 1991, Deborah and Philip had a little girl, the namesake, Katrina Marshall, a sweet reminder of Deborah's big sister, the motivation she needed to keep going, to keep pushing for answers. Answers to questions like, the car that Katrina was found in. Whose was it? It turned out that the 1978 Ford LTD was registered to someone that Katrina knew well. To protect the integrity of this ongoing investigation, I won't be revealing the name of the person who owned the car. But according to Dallas PD, this person had an airtight alibi. Another person of interest was a friend of Katrina's, a close one, that even Deborah Mowry wondered about, wondered if he was somehow involved. But when it came to that person, Dallas PD said they were never able to find him for questioning. Was there an actual attempt to locate him? Time and time again, Deborah was disappointed to find that despite their efforts, Dallas PD wasn't getting anywhere. And so that's how it was for decades. Few answers. Dallas PD informing Deborah Mowry that they were actively investigating, but not providing any more information than that. And then more tragedy struck the Maori family. Let's take a break. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It was 1993, and while Deborah Mowry was chasing after a toddler, back in Dallas, Texas, Joanne Mowry, the adventurous, mischievous sister, was living her life on her terms. At the corner of South Central Expressway and Linfield lies a motel situated on the highway. Today, a sign out front advertises luxury for less and invites guests to try out the waterbed and spa. It was April 6, 1993, when a guest at the Linfield Motel called the front desk, worried that they heard a disturbing commotion in the next room. Next, a motel staff member contacted the police who arrived to find a horrific scene in room 21. It was the lifeless body of an unidentified woman. She'd been beaten to death. Her throat slit. Guests and motel employees were interviewed by police, and someone said they saw a man in a suit leaving the motel sometime before the police arrived. The deceased woman was identified as Joanne Mowry, originally of Lawrence, Kansas. She was just a few weeks shy of her 31st birthday. My aunt Joanne was murdered, and that's when it all went downhill. Pretty much ruined my parents' marriage, my mom's mental health really overall at that point. I don't think there was any coming back from that. And that's when my parents ended up divorcing. And so, yeah, my dad is still alive in Wichita. He's playing golf every day in his retirement. (laughs) Unlike Aunt Katrina, Aunt Joanne's murder was solved quite quickly. She'd been spending the night with a man at the Linfield Motel. He had beaten her and slit her throat with a broken beer bottle before fleeing the scene, he turned himself in right away, was charged, prosecuted, and convicted. The strain that was put on the Maori family was just too much to bear. As they had done with Katrina, who'd been murdered eight years earlier, members of the family clammed up, shut down, tried to distance themselves from the pain, the embarrassment, the reality, but not Deborah. Now, our namesake's mom did what she did best. She showed up, the only one, in fact, to show up to the hearings for Joanne's murder trial. Already quite broken down by the loss of Katrina, Deborah tried to push through for Joanne. In order to prepare Deborah for an upcoming day in court, attorneys shared the crime scene photos with her, informing her that it was better to see them ahead of time and know what to expect. Deborah wrote this more than a decade later. Joanne was brutally murdered in 1993. Ironically, this happened in Dallas, Texas as well, and I was 30 years old at the time. Fortunately, 
an arrest was made within a couple of days because the hotel room the suspect had murdered her in was actually registered in his name. It was a date rape type situation. He had beat her up with a beer bottle, which she eventually broke and slit her throat with. The Dallas district attorney said the autopsy pictures were some of the worst she'd seen in her 10 years with the district attorney's office. My already battered spirit was broken down even further for numerous years after this, if not for the responsibility of caring of my own little two-year-old Katrina, I honestly don't believe I'd be sitting here sharing the story with you today. It was an incredibly tough time for me. My sisters, however in different ways, defined so much of my life. I quite often feel like a fish out of water, just floundering around this world without them. Struggling to come to terms with both of her sister's murders, Deborah's mental health suffered, and her marriage quickly deteriorated. Katrina Marshall, close with both mom and dad, was a well-adjusted child despite the divorce of Deborah and Philip Marshall. And as you've learned, she grew up with a strong sense of who her Aunt Katrina was. This an off-limits topic to talk about in my family. Nobody would talk about it. Still nobody will. Hardly. Of course, my grandparents are long gone, but naturally I lived with my grandparents for some years. So I wanted, as I got older, I wanted to know about the person I was named after. So I, as any child you would think would do, just would ask questions, what she was like or just anything, anything. And I always got shushed or the subject got changed or something, always something. Just never a topic anyone would discuss. And it's not like I was trying to ask about the killing. I just wanted to know about the person in general. It was just not a topic anyone would be willing to discuss. And the crazy times are the times where I would ask and get shushed while my mom was also there. Because she was not like that at all. So she would just immediately jump in and it would end up being a huge blowout argument between her and my one of my uncles or grandparents or whatever like you can tell the resentment my mom had for family to her she was just so non-judgmental that the fact that people would judge her even if it was a drug overdose that way and just kind of like black sheep her from the family like she never existed was just so hurtful for my mom and i don't know at that point i think it backfired on them and made me that much more curious as an adult and made me want to know that much more since it was such a secret. My mom and I used to go to the cemetery and visit my aunts all the time, like at least three times a week. We'd go have lunch at their grave. It was literally like around the corner. So I'm not sure. All I know is I've never seen anyone in my family go visit their graves ever, except for my mom and I. Not one time. And I've been there more times than I can count. Coming up next time on The Namesake. She told me that she checked in with Dallas and nothing to update. I was kind of in a hurry, obviously, because I was on my lunch break. And it was right before the pandemic hit, or just at the beginning of it anyway. I can't honestly tell you exactly what it is that made me know 
maybe it was a sign or God, I guess. I don't know. But something about it just didn't sit right with me. And I questioned it for the first time in my life. The Dallas PD's not motives, but their intentions or their ethics. I just had a feeling, a gut feeling. And I've, I've really learned to listen to that gut feeling a lot especially in this case. Something was off and I knew it. I had to figure out what it was because it was bothering me. And that's when it all took off from there. Thank you for listening to this episode of Method and Madness. And thank you to Katrina Marshall. If you haven't already, please leave a rating or review and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. To connect, I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. To chat, suggest a case, or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. Sound editing is by Moen Spo. That's it for this week. Until next time, take care of yourself. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.